0: Our gospel today, Luke, is not a very commonly heard gospel. I mean, there are bits and pieces of it, which we've heard, of course, we've all heard to some degree or another, unless you hate my brother, your brothers and sisters, and and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. That's been, I mean, I'm sure we've at least been exposed to that a little bit. Or, unless you carry your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. These things of which are, are, are often heard and repeated within the scriptures. But what's not repeated, and what's a little bit rarer, something that that we don't often hear about, are these two, I'd hate to call them parables because they're not really parables, but these two images that Jesus speaks about. This first image being construction of a tower. Seems kind of kind of odd, if you will, for Jesus to be talking about construction of a tower. He's usually using metaphors about farming or about or about living life or about, you know, basically like sin and things of that nature, but not really so much about construction, especially construction of towers, of war machines like towers, which generally were, were objects used to keep watch and to fire artillery, not artillery, I say artillery, very, very tongue-in-cheek, but basically fire arrows and things like that at the enemy. And after he mentions about the tower, he talks about he uses a war image. Something that, that we often don't hear about whenever we talk about Jesus. We don't often associate Jesus with, with, with military strategy. And yet he's introducing some basic military strategy. And so in doing research to kind of discover what these two parables are about, I discover that, that these parables can only really be understood... In the context of the greater scriptures, so for instance, the tower—this this tower that 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 Jesus is talking about—that's telling us that, that if you if you're smart, you'll sit and figure out if you have the resources to construct it. Well, this tower is actually being this tower is actually being a reference to the Tower of Babel. We've all known about the Tower of Babel. This was the tower that the post-flood people came together to build. Why? To one, self-sufficiently get to heaven, but to two, be spared of God's wrath. What's a tower good for? Whenever it floods, you have a place to go. It's like building your camp in Sympathmore Point 20 feet high. You're good. You're not going to get a storm surge. This is kind of the same thing. This is an opportunity to kind of be away from the the, the upcoming wrath. And so what does God do whenever they are attempting to build a tower to kind of escape his wrath, to kind of trump God? Well, he destroys it, of course. And so that's kind of what this image is is being shown to us through Christ. Christ is showing us that this pride, this idea that we can be self-sufficient in our salvation, ain't going to cut it. But there's another thing that, that, that's interesting. This, this other parable. I find actually it's a little bit more interesting. This parable of war. What's this war thing about. He says, what king does not sit down and think that if he, if he can take, that, take another king with his t- t- 10,000 troops while the other king has 20,000 troops? And then what does he go on to say? If not, while he is still far away, he will send a delegation To ask for peace terms. He will send a delegation to ask for peace terms. Believe it or not, this is not the best translation of the Greek found in Luke. The better translation is he sends a delegation to ask for things that would bring about peace. For things that make for peace. And the reason why that is so important to note is that exact same phrase comes out of the lips of Jesus right before he enters Jerusalem for his death and resurrection. This is what he says. This comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 40 to 44, 41 to 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he, Jesus, wept over it, saying, Would that even today you knew the things that make for peace? But now they are hid from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will cast up a bank about you and surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Fire and brimstone laying it out on Jerusalem. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the, the siege of Jerusalem that happened in the year 70 A.D., the Roman siege of Jerusalem. Now, to kind of give you a little bit of a historical background about the siege of Jerusalem, we've got to go back to, to what, what was going on in Jerusalem at the time. We all know that Jerusalem, and the Holy Land as a whole, was occupied by the Roman Empire. This started in, in, in the year 150 or so BCE, so before Christ. This is, this is long before this, this, this happened, but, but for 200 years, the Jews were always kind of festering. They wanted the Holy Land for themselves. They didn't want to have to share it with the Romans. And so what happened was, in 66 AD, the Jews came together and revolted against the Romans. And believe it or not, they were successful. Not only did they take Jerusalem, but they took multiple areas around it. These Jews, just so you know, were led by a group of people called zealots. And believe it or not, Simon Peter was a zealot. So if you will, before, before he converted to Christ, he was one of these, these re- rebellious folk who was looking to overthrow the, overthrow the Roman government. Now what ended up happening was after they overthrew the government in 66 AD, word got back to Nero, that famous megalomaniac Roman emperor. And what did Nero do? What every megalomaniac does, he sends a giant caravan of troops their way, estimated 80,000 Roman troops led by the Roman general Vespasian. He would actually later on become the emperor. And so what happens is Vespasian gets to the Holy Land, and then by the year sixty nine, by the by the winter of sixty nine, has Jerusalem the city surrounded. By April of seventy, he has, he has the city on, of Jerusalem on full on siege. And for those who are unfamiliar with military tactics, to siege a city doesn't mean necessarily like like go scale the walls or anything. To siege a city is to to take your troops. And encircle the city so that nobody can get in and nobody can get out. Essentially starving them to death. And making them, making them thirst to where they ultimately give up. And his, his plan was a success. This is what happened before he charged the city, before he overran it. This is a, an account from Flavius Josephus. Josephus wrote this as it was an, I was a Jew, and this is an eyewitness account of the fall of Jerusalem. And he wrote this just a few years after Jerusalem fell. He was, he was kind of like a, a double agent. He was a Jew, but he was also on the, on the side of the Romans. And so this is, this is how, he, how he talks about the siege. He said, throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers. And enduring unspeakable sufferings. In every house, the merest hint of food sparked violence. And close relatives fell to blows, snatching from one another the pitiful supports of life. No respect was paid even to the dying. The ruffians, anti-Roman zealots, searched them in case they were concealing food somewhere in their clothes. Or just pretending to be near death. Gaping with hunger, like mad dogs, lawless gangs went, staggering and reeling through the streets, battering upon the doors like drunkards, and so bewildered that they broke into the same house two or three times in an hour. Need drove the starving to gnaw at anything. Refuse, Which animals would reject was collected and turned into food. In the end, they were eating their belts and shoes and the leather stripped off their shields. Tufts of withered grass were devoured and sold in little bundles for four drachmas. Believe it or not, Josephus goes on to write more and more about the starvation of the people. And this is the PG version. There's so many more graphic details and so much, so much many more terrible things that happened to the people who were being sieged in Jerusalem, the Jews there. But ultimately, after these, the, after so many of them had died, what what Vespasian what did was he sieged the city, he jumped over, the, he, he, he crossed through the walls, overcame them, and tore that whole city down. The prophecy of Christ was true. There would not leave one stone upon another. The temple, that sacred, sacred building that the Jews loved, torn down to where the only thing left was a supporting wall. To this day, this wall is known as the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall. We see this very often on TV, and actually Pope John Paul II visited it several years ago during his pontificate. It's a very sacred site for the Jewish people to this day. And so what Jesus is essentially saying and essentially reminding us is, at least in this parable, is that this could be you guys. He's not talking to just the apostles here. He's talking to a great multitude of people. And he's essentially saying that the Romans are coming. The Romans will come. You've got a choice. Either you can... Choose to fight with your 10,000 men while they have 20,000, even though they have much, much more. Or you can choose to get a delegate and spread peace between the two. And so that's basically what's going on here. We have these two parables that ultimately show one essential thing. You and I are not capable of taking care of ourselves. We need some more help. So this is a sin, so so let's kind of dice go through this. So, there's, so the the first parable we have the tower, and what it's, what is Jesus essentially saying is that we don't have the resources to save ourselves. We don't have the resources, and the reason why he tells us that is that's something that we often forget, isn't it? We often think that we do have the resources to save ourselves. We look at our relationships, our technology, our moral character, and very common, very oftenly, we look at these things and think, eh, "I'm self sufficient." I've got what it takes. What do I need the mass for? What do I need the church for? What do I need these dogmas? What do I need all this for? And what can very often happen is we can choose to build a tower on our own merits, on our own strengths. And what Jesus points out is that's not possible. What's going to end up happening is in our pride we will be humiliated. Because we will start to lay down the foundation and we will ultimately fall apart. It will be like building a tower of Babel. But what about the second parable? With the war. I think Jesus is looking at us and saying, Don't pick a fight you know you can't win. And the fact of the matter is, is that although we are not we are not first century Jews, we are still Christians in this world. And the fact of the matter is, is we need to remember that we cannot go to war with God the Father through our sin, through our anger, through our rejected through through our rejection of Him and expect to win. We can't do it. It's impossible. We cannot expect to sin and expect a happy judgment. What we need is what Jesus says we need. We need a delegate. We need somebody to go before us and offer peace terms. We need somebody to go and appease the wrathful God, the, the God that we've been, whose wrath we've incited through our sin, so that we can allow us to coexist in peace and in communion and in love. And so the question then becomes, how do we acquire this delegate? How do we get on the side of Christ, who is our mediator, our mediator between the Father and ourselves? And the answer that he gives us is simple renounce all of your possessions easy right too simple but the question is how do you do that realistically and I think if we want to interpret that correctly if we want to see how to properly renounce our possessions we have to go back and look at the scripture again there's two things that Jesus says we need to renounce if we want to be his disciples the first thing our relationships we need to recognize, while we might have wonderful relationships with our parents, with our brothers, with our sisters, and with our friends, we need to recognize that they are not sufficient compared to the, the relationship we have with God. The only thing that matters is our relationship with God. Do we desire, is it good to be friends? Is it good to have these relationships? Absolutely. But God comes first. Something so essential. But the second thing that we need to let go of, I would argue, even more than relationships, is our pride. Pride is the very thing that gets us to build these towers, these ideas that we can save ourselves. Pride is the very thing that gets us to think, you know what, I can sin against the Lord and I can be okay. I can go and do my own thing and I'll be fine. I can go and and live my own life and it'll be no big deal. And so what's the remedy for that? Jesus tells us to take up your cross and to follow him. Guys, the cross is the single greatest instrument of humiliation the Roman soldiers had to offer. What was the cross? It is not, not a noble thing. It is a humiliating thing. It's something they, they did. They crucified people in order to show the world how pathetic they were. And what Jesus is saying is that that's what you need to do. If you really want to follow me, it's going to be a matter of swallowing your pride. It's going to be a matter of being indifferent to the way the world sees you. It's going to be be a matter of recognizing that only the Lord matters. So my encouragement to you guys is to follow this example of Christ. To let go of the need to be affirmed through, through relationships and to let go of the need to be affirmed through our pride. And if we can do that, if we can be like, like Christ in this way, then we can be like the Christians in the first century AD. That's what's so cool about this whole story. The destruction of Jerusalem did not affect the Christians. The ancient ancient historian Eusebius points out that before the oncoming slaughter by Vespasian, a divine image came to all the Christians and told them to flee and go to the city known as Pella, a community right outside of Jerusalem. And what happened? They were spared. And guys, I think that's what Jesus is trying to show us. He wants to spare us of the oncoming wrath. He wants us to spare us of apocalyptic judgment. But it's going to be a matter of surrendering to him, surrendering our pride, in our relationships. Amen.